Well, I had hoped to uh, have an opportunity to launch back into our study of the book of Acts tonight, but uh, circumstances uh, prevailed and uh, not going to be able to do that this evening. But it gives me a chance, I think, to speak on something that's always a burden in my own heart and nothing more appropriate, I think, for me as a pastor as I think about uh, still the beginning of this year and as I think about what my desires are, my hopes and uh, yearnings are for us as a body of Christ in the year 2013. I want to speak really on the issue of prayer because it's, it's a burden of mine that so much of our prayer is useless prayer. Wasted prayer. I know that concept is foreign to a lot of people. The idea that, that any prayer could be a wasted prayer or any prayer could be a useless prayer. We're, we're told almost from childhood that if you simply say something in Jesus' name, He's going to hear you. And that God is so big and He's so omniscient and He knows everything. And then the simplest little prayer offered in in Jesus' name, is heard by Him. And we kind of hear that mantra over and over again because God loves us so much, right? But in fact, the Scripture speaks a lot about wasted, useless prayers. I mean, for example, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 1 about Israel, he says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you even though you multiply multiply your prayers, I will not listen. I mean, they're useless prayers. There are some times when we we bow bow down at the table around a meal, or we bow down in our chair, or we bow down at church, and we mouth some prayer without even realizing it is a wasted prayer. Useless before the eyes of God. And in your own life. James 4.3 says, sometimes we ask and don't receive because we ask with wrong motives. 1 John 5.14 says we have a confidence in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. But by implication, if it's not according to His will, He doesn't. So there are all kinds of useless prayers. We see it on the pages of Scripture. Prayers that would be offered with wrong motives with the wrong view of God, with the wrong view of ourselves, with a misunderstanding of what God's will is. And so as we think about the issue of prayer, sometimes it's not even, the main issue is not even a lack of prayer in our lives as much as it is the wrong prayers that are being offered. We might say it this way, we might as well not pray at all given some of the prayers that we are have a tendency to lift up to the Lord. With that in mind, I want to turn our attention tonight to a model prayer. It's not the model prayer the Lord gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, what is known as the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. It's a model prayer that comes to us out of the Old Testament. It's out of the life of Daniel, found in Daniel chapter 9. One of my absolute favorite passages in all the Scripture. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is a man who's known for prayer. In fact, we know more about Daniel's prayer life than any other Old Testament saint. No other person's prayers are recorded as frequently or his prayer life is detailed as diligently. 
And probably because he was known even in his own day as a man of prayer. When people contrive schemes in order to try to topple Daniel, the schemes themselves centered around his reputation for prayer. And the fact that they knew that he would be immovable in it, in his disciplines. This is a man known in his day and throughout all of the history of faith since his time now as one of the great steadfast prayer warriors of all time. And the Lord has recorded for us in Daniel chapter 9 an indelible model of prayer that comes out of one of the greatest men of prayer that has ever walked the face of this earth. Daniel chapter 9, we give a glimpse into what made his prayer life so vibrant as we just examine this great prayer of his. And I think it really unfolds for us four key elements of effective intercessory prayer as we think through this passage. We're going to look at those tonight, but I want to begin just by reading to you the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly, and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands in which you've driven them because of the treachery they've committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings and our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against Him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that were written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against Him. He's confirmed His words which He spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there's not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. 
And yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord, God, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that He's done, and we've not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all Your righteous acts, let Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city Jerusalem, Your holy hill, Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O Lord, uh, uh, excuse me, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. It's a profound prayer. It almost defies comment. Just on the hearing of it and the reading of it, we're struck by how different it is from what we normally hear. And how different it is from the way that we pray to God. We're humbled. We're brought low. We're brought hopefully to a place of reflection and a place of repentance. But there's a benefit for us to look closely at this and to think carefully about it. And as we said, take note of four key elements that are in this prayer. We don't have time to look at every single word But take note of the essential characteristics of this prayer so that we might dress ourselves and our own prayer life in what made Daniel such a warrior of prayer. I think the first element that we could take note of is simply Daniel's steadfastness in prayer. A steadfastness. Seemingly every turn as you read through the book of Daniel, Daniel is taking his request before the Lord. His trust in God was unwavering. His commitment to prayer was uncompromising. I mean, that was true even when his prayers could have cost him dearly. Back over in Daniel chapter 6, we remember the story. Daniel chapter 6 In verse 4, after Daniel had been set over the whole kingdom by the decree of of, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, we read in verse 4, then the 
presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for, compl- of, uh, for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And then these presidents and satraps came, to, came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This is a man who's steadfast in prayer. I mean, it would have been easy and convenient for him to sort of rationalize this out of the way. Well, gosh, my prayer, my prayer disciplines, my prayer patterns, they could cause trouble for me in my career. What I need to do is curtail this for a while until the difficult times blow over. That would have been reasonable enough, right? That would have made enough sense. That's not the way Daniel viewed the world, though. He didn't view prayer as something that was secondary, attached to everything else that he did, which then became an issue of negotiation. Prayer for Daniel was core. It was first, it was foremost. I often remind myself, unfortunately not enough, but try to remind myself as regularly as possible that the most important thing that I will do today is pray. Even on a Sunday, it's not preach the Word. It's not go out and do a kind deed. It's not even serve other people. Not saying any of those things obviously are bad. But the most important thing that we would, any of us, do each day is pray. This is Daniel, the great example of an undistracted life of prayer no matter what. He understood the priority of prayer and he refused under any circumstances to be intimidated out of it or distracted from it. Because for him, it was core and central to who he was before God a servant of the Lord in fellowship with His God and in worship of His God, that was the reason He existed. And so we read in Daniel 9.3 that He turns His face to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. In other words, this was no perfunctory prayer. I mean, you don't just rush out in prayer whenever you're going in fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel, we might say, prepared himself for prayer. 
donning these sackcloth and these ashes, going through a period of fasting in order to prepare his mind to go before the Lord. All of these things themselves are not efficacious in earning any favor before God, but they are symbols of inner humility and they are tools to, to rivet our mind to the task of seeking the Lord. We might, we might note then that Daniel's prayers were thoughtful, they were earnest, and they were fervent. This isn't a man, in other words, whose prayer life was on the go. The great saints throughout all time have always been those who locked themselves away for dedicated time of prayer. It wasn't prayer behind the wheel. It wasn't prayer in the grocery line. It wasn't prayer uh, walking in between offices. It wasn't prayer in any of those means. Daniel prepared himself and set aside earnest, thoughtful, dedicated, intentional prayer. Because he knew the Lord was deserving of nothing less. He knew that God demanded just such dedication. I think it's interesting. You see it not only in Daniel's life, but you see it in our Lord's life. We're told in Luke chapter 4 that it was his regular habit to go off alone and pray sometimes all night. I mean, that's always been a profound concept to me. I mean, you, first of all, you wonder why does Jesus even need to pray? I mean, he and God are in perfect communion, right? And then... Even with that, I mean, why does he have to go away and spend such long and dedicated times and hours, and yet that's what he does? I think it's very telling when you come to Matthew 26 and Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and he urges his disciples to watch and pray with him. And then he comes and he finds them all sleeping. And interestingly, he addresses Peter among all of them, saying, so, you could not watch, keep watch with me for one hour of prayer. It's a sad indictment. A sad indictment for a believer. All the disciples were asleep, but he probably singled out Peter because Peter was the one who just a few hours earlier so proudly professed in the face of everyone else even though all may fall away, from, uh, fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I have to die with you, he says, I will not deny you. So Jesus singles him out in this prayer rebuke. He understood something that Peter hadn't yet grasped. And that is that our love for Christ is never more clearly reflected that in our dedicated prayer. I mean, you can stand all day and boldly proclaim how true your devotion is going to be and how you're a true believer and how you've prayed a prayer of salvation at some point and how you, you know, want to be a Christian and all these other things. You can proclaim your devotion to Christ all day long and then if you can't even spend one hour of prayer, really, has your love been tested? That hour would be much different, of course, than the spotlight in front of some group. A quiet time when no one sees but God. But that's the true test of your devotion, right? That's what Jesus' 
is trying to help Peter to see. It's been the experience of believers time and time over through the centuries. The secret of prayer, the secret of fervent prayer, is a mystery that we seemingly spend our time, our whole life trying to unravel, and yet at the same time prayer is almost the undeniable breath that we must breathe if we're going to be in communion with God. We pray as, the, as Jesus taught without ceasing, as Paul says, without ceasing. We do this as an act of worship and as a test of our devotion, as the proving grounds of the quality of our faith. This was Daniel. Daniel had good times, he prayed. Daniel saw difficult times, he prayed. Daniel read the Word of God and he went to prayer. And it wasn't flippant prayer, he prepared himself with sackcloth and ashes and fasting because he knew the importance of dedicated time to the Lord. I think secondly, we could take note that Daniel's prayers were effective because they not only were steadfast, but they were in accordance with God's Word. I mean, this really arises out of the whole context here. In the first three verses, Daniel is reading. And while he's reading, he comes across a passage in Jeremiah that explains God's plan for the captivity of Israel, Jeremiah 29. And he discerns as he's reading there a prophecy. Interestingly, a prophecy which he takes quite literally. He understands there's been a prophecy and that for 70 years Israel would be in captivity and after those 70 years they would be released and he discerns that that time is approaching its end. They've been there nearly 70 years. This would have been uh, 70 years calculated from the year 486 when, uh, whenever Israel was taken into captivity. Excuse me, 586 when Israel was taken into captivity. And he discerns that they're approaching the end of that time and that the time of their release would be at hand. Here he is reading the Word of God. And regardless of the fact that it is a prophecy or regardless of the fact whatever, what he's discerning is the plan of God. What he's discerning is the will of God. What he's discerning is what God wants to happen. And he's struck by that. And being struck by that, he takes it to the Lord in prayer and basically begins to pray what he understands to be the will of the Lord back to the Lord. This is exactly what we're told over and over again. Real prayer really ought to be. 1 John 5.14 This is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Of course, that begs the question, how do you know God's will? And there's simply no shortcut to that apart from spending time in meditation in God's Word. I'm not talking about just sort, of the, just sort of the superficial mouthing back to the Lord, some verse of Scripture. I'm talking about the meditation, the comprehension and discerning of God's will according to God's Word and then praying that. Praying that. In other words, the level, of effectiveness, the level of effectiveness in your prayer life is tied directly to the depth of your understanding of the Word of God. And to the extent that we pray in harmony with God's Word and God's plan, 
we pray effectively, fruitfully. We might even say strategically. Effective prayer, the scripture tells us, is always consistent with God's will. What you're doing, you understand when you're praying, is you're not informing God of anything. And you're not manipulating God. What you're doing is you're joining with God in the plan that He's working out in His sovereign will. You're marrying your heart and your life together in His sovereign plan in the accomplished purposes of His will. Daniel didn't bow down to pray because he had some doubt about whether God would fulfill His word. He didn't bow down to pray because he felt like if he didn't pray that somehow that was going to curtail God's activity and God suddenly wouldn't fulfill his prophecy. And Daniel didn't read the the prophecy from Jeremiah and conclude, well, God's going to do it anyway. Why bother praying? And he didn't read it and decide that it's a neat concept. So he's going to offer some trite little token prayer in accordance with this. Daniel read and he discerned the will of God. And he took up sackcloth and ashes and fasting to join together with God in the outworking of His will. Folks, that's what godly prayer looks like. That's what effective prayer warriors do. They bathe themselves in the Word of God so that they think God's thoughts after Him. And then they pray those thoughts. And they pray that will. And they pray that plan for the Lord's glory. I think we could take note also of a third quality, a third key element of Daniel's prayer here. And it really shouldn't be profound. It really shouldn't be that unique. But it is in our own day and time. And that is his humility. You see the opening words there in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. I mean, that kind of approach to the Lord is such a rebuke to the modern day flippant language and casual approach and superficial giddy joyfulness with which people render their worship and their prayers to the Lord. I remember just as a a very undiscerning college student had only been a Christian maybe a year or two relatively untaught, just trying to seek out the Lord myself, and being in a prayer group with a a bunch of buddies in a dorm room. And there was this guy who had really come in with a lot of zeal, and he wanted to really kind of lead us in this prayer. And I remember we all bowed together, and he said, Daddy! And he goes on with his prayer, and I just was struck. I mean, I didn't know how to comprehend all that. I certainly knew that I had never prayed like that. I began to wonder maybe if I had missed something, but it just didn't seem to match the tenor and tone of prayers that I saw in Scripture. And it doesn't. It doesn't. 
This is a man, you understand, Daniel, who was as intimate with God as anyone there ever was. This is a man who had spent as much time in prayer with God as anyone. And what it led him to was not some superficial flippant approach to the Lord, but a reverent and humble approach to the Lord. He addresses God with the title, The Lord My God, he says in verse 4. Sort of repeating, by the way, a description he gave out of verse 3. It combines the word Adonai, which emphasizes God's rightful authority, His Lordship, and the word Elohim, which emphasizes God's almighty power. And so he's approaching the God who in all of his power, in all of his authority, has the means by which to work, but in no way is obligated to any man. I think verse 14 reflects perhaps the most important aspect of his approach. He says down in that verse, after affirming the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. He says, the Lord our God is righteous in all His works that He's done. And we've not obeyed His voice. In effect, Daniel, when he approached God, he kept always in perspective who He is and who God is. This is the God who's righteous. And in all His works that He has done, even in pouring out calamity upon Israel, He is in no way worthy of blame. You know, in that sense, Daniel always understood the distinction between God and man. And he never got confused that God somehow is like us. He never brought God down and tried to make Him like His buddy. He always understood keeping God in proper reverence as He came to the Lord. Even that, here is this righteous man who we read earlier in Daniel chapter 6. No one who knew Him could bring a charge against Him. I mean, there was nothing in His life that was worthy of reproach or rebuke or any of that. And how does Daniel approach Him here in verse 4? He takes His place alongside every other sinner and He says to the Lord, we, I'm sorry, in verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. He isn't like the, the sort of Pharisee on the front of the of the synagogue Jesus speaks about there in Luke chapter 18 where he's saying, you know, God, I'm thankful that I'm not like all these other guys who've gotten in so much trouble. There's a tremendous amount of humility framing who God is, the God that He is approaching and understanding who He is as He comes. This is Daniel. might seem ironic to a lot of people and unusual for a man of this kind of spiritual stature and maturity to still be approaching God so overwhelmed by a sense of sin. That's just a failure to realize that the closer one draws to God, the more he's aware of his sinfulness, right? That's why Paul could say in one of his final letters in the New Testament that he was the foremost of sinners. This is Daniel's perspective. 
So his prayers are effective because he approaches God with a proper sense of shame and humility and perspective. And then we could add to this, his prayers are effective not only because they were steadfast, not only because they were according to God's word, not only because they were offered with the proper sense of humility, but then fourthly, because they were offered with a proper sense of God's character. They were offered with a proper sense of God's character. In short, we need to say this, that your prayers ought to be more consumed with God than they are with yourself. Your prayers ought to be more consumed with God than they are for yourself. I mean, the purpose of prayer really is not so that God can know you and your needs better, right? So to view prayer as simply a reciting of requests before God is really to bypass the real purpose of prayer. Prayer should be, first and foremost, a reciting of God's character. I mean, this is really a profound prayer when you just kind of take stock of the fact that you pass through the first 14 verses of Daniel chapter 9 before you ever hear the first request I mean, I encourage you to go back and read it on your own and just just listen to what he says and realize he doesn't even ask anything of God until you get to verse 16. This is the model that we see in so many great prayers and so many Old Testament examples. Devoted prayer begins in a significant portion or We might even say in some cases it's completely consumed with the reciting of God's character. Sometimes that's all it is in the book of Psalms. Just nothing but a recitation of God's character. When's the last time you bowed down in prayer and the only thing you did was recite God's character back to Him? Most of us don't even consider that prayer. That's not even in a category for us. We think of prayer as as the presentation of our needs. No, it's the presentation of God. Framed in our minds properly to Him. Prayers do not begin with petition. They begin with worship and affirmation of who God is. Sometimes our greatest desire is to get our prayers answered. God's greatest desire is that we know Him. And you can kind of see this as you move through the prayer. Daniel mentions several attributes of God. We could take note, for example, in verse 4, how he speaks of God's power and God's majesty. He calls Him the great and awesome God. I mean, he could pray with confidence because he knew that God is powerful enough to change whatever circumstances he might be facing when it served his will. And he knew that he would work steadfastly enough to defend his great name. This is first and foremost, of course, a prayer of confession. And we shouldn't miss the point that Daniel frames the guilt of God's people and his own guilt 
in light of their circumstances and suffering. But more importantly, he frames it in verse 4 in light of God's power and majesty and glory. That's where he begins. Similar, very, very similar to what Jesus taught us. Whenever we begin our prayer, how does he tell us to begin it? Hallowed be your name. This is where prayer begins. It begins with the hallowing of God's name, with the setting apart of God's name, with the reciting of God's character, with the worship and adoration of who He is, with the recounting of all His works and the telling of all His majesty. And even in verse 4, He speaks not just about God's power and majesty, but about His faithfulness. He tells God, He says, You are the one who keeps covenant with those who love Him. Acknowledging as he's praying and worshiping to the Lord that everything that's happening in his life is, is exactly in line with what God promised. You say, well, what do you mean? I mean, Daniel will get into this later on, but he says, look, all the circumstances are taking place in my life. Your word said they were going to happen. I mean, you, you warned us in the prophets that you sent to our fathers and to our kings and to our princes that this is what's going to happen. This is exactly what has happened. All of the circumstances in our life, all of the ill, all of the grief that we're experiencing right now, this is all in accordance with your word. That's a part of God's covenant faithfulness. The carrying out of His warnings and His curses. But of course, He also framed a covenant that promised blessings with repentance. He says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, that after all these things, that is all the curses recounted in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you shall call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. And have mercy on you. And will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. I mean, this was no doubt in Daniel's mind as well. This covenant faithful God. Who would keep His word not only in warnings, will also keep His word in blessings. He had promised never to forsake Israel. Never to forget His promises. Even in the darkest, bleakest time of their captivity, they were to call to mind this covenant that God had made with them. And the fact that when they turn to the Lord, He will restore them. Daniel recounts that. God, You keep Your Word. And even, he mentions His steadfast love in verse 4, along with His covenant keeping. God's actions are always loving Always righteous. He never makes a mistake. This is sort of the, this is sort of the flip side of, of all the judgment that he will go on and talk about God's righteousness and holiness. He affirms still God's love there in verse 4. Down in verse 9, he mentions two more attributes, the mercy and forgiveness of the Lord. To us, he says, belongs open shame to our kings and our princes and our fathers because we've sinned against you to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Mercy being the withholding of God's wrath 
forgiveness, the pardoning of our wrongdoing, the canceling out of our debt against Him. And over and over again, you just go through this psalm, excuse me, this prayer, and you hear Him affirming who God is over and over again. To us, to us belong open shame. To you, O God, belong mercy and forgiveness and steadfast love and covenant faithfulness and power and might and majesty. And even in verse 16, righteousness, he says, according to all your righteous deeds. He even says back in verse 14, the Lord our God is righteous in all His works. This is a prayer that's utterly consumed with God. And that's really how we take stock of our prayers. That's really how we should gauge them. The realization that our prayers are really not about us. They're about the Lord. The realization that that's really where God wants us to be as we approach Him. The realization that as we come to Him, we ought to be consumed more with Him than we are with ourselves. That's Daniel. He prayed fervently. He prayed steadfastly. He prayed humbly. He prayed always in the light of God's Word. And he prayed always in the light of God's character. It's a transformative prayer when you get your minds around it. And you begin to realize what his prayer looks like in contrast to what our weak and faltering prayer life looks like. There are useless prayers, wasted prayers. Prayers that the Lord Himself says He turns His eyes away from and He will not answer. Prayers that are lifted up, maybe with great emotion and great heart, but aren't according to the will of God and are useless prayers. Prayers that we pat ourselves on the back because we offer to the Lord maybe on a regular basis in passing, but they really aren't dedicated. They really aren't times when we have ever lifted our minds off of ourselves and off of the world around us and set our minds on the Lord. My prayer for us is in 2013 that we would be transformed, that we would become a people of prayer according to the Scripture and not just offering up wasted prayers, but prayers that the Lord Himself desires. Prayers the Lord Himself hears. Prayers that lock arms with what God is doing in His will and make us fruitful and effective as prayer warriors. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Lord, it is You who's deserving of all our attention and praise. Indeed, we could set our minds on our circumstances and our needs, but what a faulty way to begin our approach to You. Lord, there's nothing more majestic and nothing more beautiful that we could ever set our minds on. There's nothing 
more lovely that we could ever be consumed with, nothing more satisfying that we could ever desire than you. There's nothing that so ministers to our heart and fills us with hope than the reflection on your character and the rejoicing in your love. It's your power that secures us. It's your promise that keeps us. Lord, it is your word that guides us. It is your spirit on which we depend all the time. It is you who sanctify us and it is you who will glorify us. It's you who lift us out of the pit and bring us always to a place of safety. It's you who forgiven our iniquities and our sins and brought us into fellowship. Lord, I pray that those realities and those truths will be the things that fill us in our prayer life daily. And if we do nothing but offer up prayers of adoration and praise to you, may you fill us with the confidence that we have truly prayed, that we've done what is pleasing to you, we've done what is most necessary. Make us a people of prayer, Lord. For your namesake. Amen. You're dismissed.